0: Father, we thank you again for the opportunity to be before you and to be in your word tonight. Lord Jesus, as we talked about this morning, um, we want to enter into a time of communion with you. I pray that this time would not just be study and head knowledge, but Lord, that you would teach us to commune with you. My prayer, my heart is, Father, that as, as I'm teaching up here, that there are any number of conversations that are going on with you among our fellowship tonight that we are praying through and considering everything that not only is is taught but is coming directly from your word that we be applying these things to our own lives considering where we are with you and praising you for the wonder of your plan worshiping you Father for everything that you have written and revealed to us in this wonderful book I thank you for loving us so much and it is for worship's sake that we're here and so Father help us to be there In that place with your spirit. As John, when he first received the revelation, was in the spirit on the Lord's day. So here we are, Father, desiring to be in the spirit on the Lord's day to hear from you. So bless this time, Lord, and open our eyes wide in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Matthew 24, verse 6. Matthew 24, verse 6. Jesus is teaching. Speaking of that time of the end, he says, You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place. But that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. Did you hear about the earthquake in Indonesia just this this last week? Okay. It's interesting. They've already been blasted by the tidal wave and, and by the tsunami and now by the earthquake. And it just... That region of the world is, is taking a lot of hits. But Jesus says these are all just the merely the beginning of birth pangs. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and kill you. And you will be hated by all nations because of my name. And at that time, by the way, you will be delivered not to the tribulation, but to tribulation. There's a difference. But he says at that time many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Now tonight's study in Revelation 14 contains both good news and bad news. But in light of all the bad news we seem to be getting into these days and seem to be on the, uh, in the media, we're going to start with the good news first. And the good news is simply this. The final soul harvest is close at hand. That final time when God pulls out all the stops to reach a Christ-rejecting and sinful world is very, very close. And you may say, well, aren't we in that time? Aren't we part of that evangelism, that great mass evangelism? Uh, to a degree. But as I've said in here before, the Lord is going to do more evangelizing than we can even imagine after we're out of here. Once the church is gone. The world is at this time on the verge of the greatest evangelistic campaign in history. But I personally don't believe that that harvest is going to happen until the church has been pulled out. Now, some verses on the rapture that you can go back and read. We've talked so much about that, but I just list these for you. Matthew 24:36 through 42. Luke 21, verse 36. And all the way down to Revelation 3.10 on our list up there behind me. Are all simply verses supporting, backing up, uh, speaking of the rapture. of The church being pulled out before the tribulation happens. Before that time of testing that Jesus said would come upon the whole earth. The church is pulled out. Now these, among other verses, tell us the Lord is going to come and take believers away. And as so often happens before war, the ambassadors are removed from the country at risk. don't know if you're aware of this, but on the eve of America's entry into World War II, the two Japanese ambassadors to the United States were in meetings in Washington, D.C., were in negotiation meetings with higher-ups in D.C. They walked out of one of those meetings Quietly went directly to their hotel, packed their bags, went to the airport and flew back to Japan just before Pearl Harbor was bombed. Why? Because the ambassadors were pulled out before the war happened. The people of that country were pulled out to be protected. In the same way, before the massive airstrikes began in Iraq, all U.S. ambassadors were removed from Baghdad until after the dust began to settle. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.20, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. As though Christ were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We are his ambassadors. And like always happens before war, before attack takes place, the ambassadors are pulled out and protected. Now by the way, something to consider as far as this whole idea of the rapture of the church is concerned, the majority of the church has already been kept out of the tribulation. Think about that. As of today, the vast majority of the church across the last 2,000 years has already been protected from the tribulation. Will not go through the tribulation. Are already at home with Jesus, at least in the spirit, as Paul talks about. But after the complete removal of Christ's ambassadors, God will enter into judgment with this Christ-rejecting and sinful world. Now, so far in our study, we've been looking, spending a lot of time looking at the tribulation. The book of Revelation spends the large, largest amount of time on that seven-year period. You know what chapters it is in the book of Revelation? If, if I asked you what, what chapters for the tribulation are, is it specifically talked about, what chapters would you tell me? What cha- <laughs> I feel like we're back in high school. Tim? What's the question? Where can you find the tribulation in the book of Revelation? Five
1: to
0: five through Close. Five through Close. Six, 6 through 19. Chapter 6 through 19. This is... You know, Tom, where are you? Can you turn this down just a little bit? I think I am suddenly got louder. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> An echoey. Chapter six through nineteen is the tribulation, and that's where we've been studying. We're in chapter fourteen tonight, so we've spent quite a bit of time in this already. But I want you to think about what's happened so far in the tribulation that we have studied. We've seen the Lord pulling out all the stops for a massive soul harvest, a massive evangelistic campaign. How has He done it? Consider this: Number one, in Revelation chapter seven, we saw God's marines. He sent the Marines, the ground troops, 144,000 of them, Jewish witnesses, on the ground preaching the word of God, proclaiming the Lord, proclaiming the gospel. Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 11, then we saw God's generals. God's generals. The two witnesses, those fiery prophets, I believe, will be Moses and Elijah. I could be wrong about that, and if I'm wrong, I'm, I'm okay with that. But I think the scripture indicates, if it's not those two prophets, it's two men who are exactly like those two prophets. God's generals in Revelation 11. And then in Revelation 14, what we've already studied, we studied not last week, but the week before, God's air force. God's air force. Three angelic harbingers of warning. As we read about in the 14th chapter, the first one preaching an everlasting gospel, the second angel predicting the fall of Babylon, and the third angel proclaiming a warning to all who would take Satan's mark, saying, if you take the mark, you will go to hell. In a nutshell, that's what that third angel says. Now you've got to consider how important salvation is to the Lord when after the 144,000, after the two witnesses, that God now pulls out all the stuff by sending three angels flying throughout the heavens, calling out to man on earth. And again, if we're taking the Bible literally, it will be physical, tangible, visible angels flying and preaching the gospel. Flying and preaching, don't take the mark. Floating up above and saying, Babylon's going to fall. You don't want to put your trust there. Why? Because God wants to save. And he does everything he possibly can to bring salvation, even to that time of tribulation where the mass of humanity has already rejected Christ outright. He's still trying to save. Why? Well, partially because God is a God of love and grace and salvation. But there's another aspect to this, and that's the fact that human rebellion will become more plain than it's ever been in all of history. Rebellion becomes illuminated, if you will, when perfect grace shines upon it. Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 11:19, 19, he says, There must also be heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. In other words, what heresies do, and, and I think when we mention this verse in relation to the Da Vinci Code, what heresies among us do is they serve to illuminate the truth. The truth becomes even more clear. For those of you who've been freaked out about the Da Vinci Code, whether it's the book or the movie, hey, it's a great opportunity for conversation for us to bring the truth to people who don't know it, who might not even have asked the questions that are being raised by the movie and the book. So heresies among us are there, as Paul says, that they are um, that they which are approved, that the truth may be made manifest among you. And mercy does the same thing. Mercy reveals sin for what it is. It is not for lack of understanding. It is not for lack of information that people don't believe even today. It's because of choice. It's plain and simple. There are people that maybe you've talked to about Jesus. You've tried to bring the word to them and you're thinking, there's got to be another way I can explain it. I haven't said it right. Lord, give me the right words. And you've been at a person over and over and over trying to bring it. You know what? It's very likely that they're choosing not to believe it. It's not that they don't have the information before them. And that's rebellion. And the Lord lays all the information out with all of His, again, His ground troops, His air forces, generals, all of the information. The gospel is brought so that people can believe, but they choose not to believe. Re- uh, rebellion is illuminated. Now you might say, so what hope do we have to evangelize our world? With all this rebellion, with people choosing to reject the gospel, what hope do we have? Well, the fact is we have the gospel. And the gospel is our hope. And the gospel is the message. It is the message we need to bring to the world. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why, Paul? For it is the power of God for salvation. The gospel is. Now, I know I talk about this all the time. But churches that stand up... And give five points to healthy living and never mention the gospel are not going to save the world. The world will only be saved through the hearing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The fact that he came into this world, God among us. God enfleshed in humanity. That he lived a perfect sinless life, that he died on the cross for our sins, that he was buried for three days, and that he resurrected. That's the gospel message. That's what the world needs to hear more than anything else. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, Paul says. To the Jew first, also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. So the harvest, the harvest gain is coming, but the harvest is not right now. The harvest is coming, but it's not right now. Jesus said, Matthew 24, 6, you'll be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place. But that is not yet the end. So let me explain what I mean by this. We are not harvesters. We are reapers. We are not, or no, I'm sorry, we're not reapers either, because reapers are harvesters. We're not harvesters or reapers. We are sowers and planters. That's our job. Now, that doesn't mean we're not going to see seeds sprout. That doesn't mean that we're not going to see people saved. It doesn't even mean that we're not going to see mass numbers of people saved. But our primary role as Christians, as ambassadors of Christ in the world, is to plant. Is to plant the seed, to sow the seed, to get the word out. And even if no one seems to be listening or taking it in, the seed which is the word of God, we have a twofold process with that. Plant the seed and pray it takes root. Plant the seed, pray that it takes root. Continue planting and praying, planting and praying. Be sowers. And don't worry so much about the harvest, it's coming. Acts 6.4, Peter said, in in great wisdom, he said, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The planting, that's our call. Now, keep in mind, we're still in this great parenthesis of Revelation. Go ahead and flip over to Revelation 14. We're still in what we've called the great parenthesis of Revelation, that parenthetical section. And you can pretty much track it from Revelation 12 through Revelation 15, verse 4. You might want to jot that down or make note of that. It's a grand overview, primarily of the last three and a half years of the tribulation, kind of all spoken of at once. And then after Revelation 15, 4, we get back to tracking. We get right back on schedule, and you'll see why probably next week. But we're in this great parenthesis, this grand overview of the last three and a half years. And we begin, we pick it up here in verse 14 of Revelation 14. John is writing, he says, Then I looked, and behold a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth is ripe. Now, interesting, in verse 14, in the King James Version, it doesn't say there's one sitting on a cloud like a son of man. It says there's one sitting on a cloud the son of man. And that's an important distinction and literally, it is the son, not a son. The son of man here may well be a reference to Jesus himself. This is my opinion. I'm not going to be dogmatic about this, but I believe the one sitting on the cloud here with the angel, with the sickle and the, and the golden crown is Jesus. It is Jesus. I have some reasons for believing that. Number one, Jesus is Lord of the harvest. And this, this one, who is not called an angel, He's called one who is like the Son of Man, one who is the Son of Man sitting on this cloud. He is holding the sickle ready to harvest, and Jesus is Lord of the harvest. Luke chapter 10, verse 2. Jesus speaking says, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Plant and pray. Plant and pray. Remember, that's our job. We're sowers, we're planters. The seed is the word, and Jesus himself is the Lord of the harvest. Secondly, and the other reason I believe that this is Jesus sitting on this cloud is because we're told that Jesus comes first on a cloud. He comes first on a cloud. Mark 13, verse 24. Tells us that in those days after that tribulation, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and then he will send forth the angels. Now listen to this. And he will gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of the heaven. Look at where the elect are gathered from. Interesting. From the farthest ends of the earth to the farthest ends of the heaven, which means what? That the elect are both on the earth and in the heavens. But they're in two places. Some are on the earth, sealed Jews, 144,000, among them possibly others who are sealed Jews. Tribulation saints, people who come to faith in Jesus during that tribulation time. But some of the elect, gang, some are in heaven. And I believe that's the raptured church. Called from the four winds, called from the farthest end of heaven. We'll be off over with Jesus on our heavenly honeymoon when the call comes, time to go. Revelation 19 gets into that, and it's a very, very cool chapter. But I want you to stop for just a moment before we go any further here and consider this idea of the cloud. The cloud, this one is sitting on the cloud. The cloud has tremendous significance throughout the Bible. Tremendous significance throughout Scripture. It's huge. Exodus 19, verse 9 the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will come to you in a thick cloud, so that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe in you forever. In Exodus 19.16, he said, So it came about on the third day when it was morning that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound, so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. The cloud, again, in Scripture, begins with carrying with it this representation of the glory of God. In fact, that's what the word Shekinah means. It's that cloud of glory, that bright cloud of glory. Even before Israel reached the promised land, they were met with the actual, literal presence of God's glory on that mountain. In the cloud. In fact, you know what? Flipping your Bibles back to Numbers chapter 9. Numbers chapter 9 verse 15. And by the way there are two or three, well probably four or five or six maybe sections of scripture that I want you to be able to flip to tonight so follow along and we're going to we're going to move through these together. But Numbers chapter 9 verse 15. Numbers 9:15. Genesis Exodus Leviticus Numbers In fact, Numbers is the book that we've been spending a lot of time in recently. Now on that day, the tabernacle, but the tabernacle was erected. The cloud covered the tabernacle and the tent of the testimony. And in the evening, it was like the appearance of fire over the tabernacle until morning. So it was continuously. The cloud would cover it by day and the appearance of fire by night. Whenever the cloud was lifted up from over the tent, afterward the sons of Israel would then set out. And in the place where the cloud settled down, there the sons of Israel would camp. At the command of the Lord, the sons of Israel would set out, and at the command of the Lord they would camp. As long as the cloud settled over the tabernacle, they remained camped. Even when the cloud lingered over the tabernacle, for many days the sons of Israel would keep the Lord's charge and not set out. If sometimes the cloud remained a few days over the tabernacle, according to the command of the Lord, they remained camped. Then, according to the command of the Lord, they set out. If sometimes the cloud remained from evening until morning, when the cloud was lifted in the morning, they would move out. Or if it remained in the daytime and at night, whenever the cloud was lifted, they would set out. Whether it was two days or a month or a year that the cloud lingered over the tabernacle, staying above it, the sons of Israel remained camped and did not set out. But when it was lifted, they did set out. At the command of the Lord they camped. At the command of the Lord they set out. They kept the Lord's charge according to the command of the Lord through Moses. God's glory resided in that cloud that rested over the tabernacle. It was his glory in the cloud that led the people through the wilderness. And ultimately it would be his glory that resided in the holiest place in the first temple in Jerusalem. What? Didn't I think you will read about that? the whole chapter the, the whole thing about what it is. it does seem redundant you, why, why do you think it's like that he's trying to make a point I think God's making a big point they needed some repetition there <laughs> the redundancy of that though and you know what it's interesting you bring that up Stacey that you're laughing about that But and, and I get I get uh, tickled by this stuff all the time because as we read through there a lot of times where something seems redundant in scripture or or it's, it's spoken one way and then it's rephrased and it's rephrased and it's one more time. God is driving home an important message. They didn't move without the cloud. They stayed when the cloud stayed. And I know we could say that just in one sentence but like you said maybe the Jewish people just needed more to understand that. But I think we all need more to understand that. This whole idea of the cloud. It didn't go before them. It went above them. Now The reason why I I bring this up and I kind of point out this whole cloud, and and I'm, I'm glad you pointed out the redundancy of it, because it's important, it plays right into what I wanted to share about this. People will often ask this question, how do I know God's will for my life? How do I know? How do I know if God's moving out? How do I know if God is staying still? How do I know if God wants me to go to the left, or to the right, or to move forward, or to go back? How do I really know God's will for my life? And the cloud is the answer to that question, and it's a great picture for us. The cloud? Listen, the cloud did not go before them. It went above them. It was over them. Psalm 105, verse 39 says, He spread a cloud for a covering, and a fire to illumine by night. Telling us that in the heat of the Sinai days, God protected Israel from the harmful rays of the sun. And in the dark of the Sinai nights, God revealed to Israel everything they needed to see. But it always was as long as they resided under the cloud. If they tried to move out without the cloud, which the scriptures tell us they didn't do, they learned very quickly, they would be out and suffering from the elements and confused and they would not have any idea which way to go. It was only when they remained under the cloud, day in and day out, That they could understand God's direction, God's leading for their lives. It's staying in the cloud. Now listen, God's glory in that cloud. The picture we see is one of covering. It's a protection. God covering and protecting me from that which I do not need to see. And God's glory revealing everything that I need to know. So the answer, listen, the answer for knowing God's will in your life is found in knowing God's will. And say that again. The answer for knowing God's will in your life is found in knowing God's will. What does that mean? Stay in the will of God. Stay in the will of God. If you want to be in the Father's will, camp beneath his covering and stay close to his fire. Understanding and following the Lord is not as difficult as we think it is. It's not as tough as we make it. We so often find ourselves getting stressed out and we're like children in a department store. I remember being a, a child, and this happened more than once with me in a department store. I would wander off into the toy section, or I'd get kind of distracted, and mom and dad would head off in another direction. Now, my mom had a, one of those beehive hairdo things, you know? So what do they call those? The The... Was it just a beehive? There wasn't another bubonic plague or some, I don't know, some bouffant, I don't know. Anyway, she had the beehive, so it was easy. I just kind of would look over the, you know, the the rounders and the clothes, and I'd see that beehive go by, and I'd go find mom again. But there were times, and you probably have experienced it, and if you haven't personally, you have children who have done this thing where you get lost. And what does a child in a department store who can't see mom or dad do? They freak out. And that's what we do with the Lord. We start freaking out. We start worrying. We don't know God's will for our life. Why has this happened to me? I don't know which direction to go. Oh no, I'm stressed out. I can't sleep. I'm worried about everything. And the Lord's saying, Boy, if you just say, Our Father in Heaven, I'd be there. If you would just talk to me, I'll give you all the direction you need. We don't have a Father who's playing games with us. We have a Father who knows exactly what He wants to accomplish in every single one of our lives. And for us to know that, we need to ask. We just stay under the cloud and gang prayer. Prayer keeps me under His covering and in His Spirit. you want to have peace in your life on a daily basis? Spend more time in prayer. That is, bar none, that is the answer to peace right there. We get stressed out. We are the kids in the department store freaking out, crying, whining, whimpering because we can't find dad. And he's saying, if you'll just talk to me, I'm right here. Just ask. Pray. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 tells us His divine power, listen to this, has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. He's given us all of it. His divine power has granted us everything for life that we possibly could need. And so, prayer keeps me under His covering. And a second aspect of that, the Word brings me close to His fire. His fire, the fire by night, the glory that they could see. As the Israelites would look up there over the tabernacle, there was the cloud, but you can't see clouds at night very well, but you can see fire. And so this cloud was illuminated by this bright blazing fire. And the fire, gang, it's a picture of staying in the Word. Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 9. Jeremiah said, His Word is in my heart like a fire. It's that passion. It's what I get all excited about every time we open up the book. Because His will is here. His covering is over me in prayer. His fire, His illumination is right here in the Word. And if I am in prayer, and I am in His Word, guess what? I'm going to know His will. The times in my life when I find myself outside of his will are the times when I am not praying and I am not in the word. And it really is that simple. And when I find myself back into his will, back moving underneath that covering, are the times when I am praying and I am in the word. Camp in the will of God, and God's will for your life will be made clear. Now, you can study through the cloud in Scripture, and there's a lot of stuff to it. From Sinai to the Mount of Transfiguration, remember? The cloud descends, and Jesus and Moses and Elijah are on the Mount of Transfiguration. And the Lord speaks from the cloud. So the cloud in Scripture is very significant. It's a fascinating study. That's all we're going to do with it tonight. But back to Revelation chapter 14, verse 16. It tells us that the one like the Son of Man was having a golden crown, was sitting on the cloud, had a sharp sickle in his hand, and another angel, verse 15, said, put out your sickle and reap. The harvest of the earth is ripe, verse 16. Then he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. Now Jesus specifically talked about this reaping process, and that's in Matthew 13. Turn your Bibles there, Matthew 13. Matthew 13, this idea of reaping a ripe harvest, Jesus gives us a wonderful parable. Matthew 13, 24, Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. And while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came to him and they said, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, Well, do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No. For while you're gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather up the tares and bind them in bundles and burn them up. But gather the wheat into my barn. Now a little farming uh, tip if you don't know what tares are. They're a false grain. that look like wheat, but they're literally a weed. And in fact, if you tried to eat a tear anyway, it would tear into you. It would kill you. It's bad for you. And so tares among wheat would be a horrible thing for an enemy to pull on on a farmer. But the disciples following up in this great parable, they ask an incredible question. A great question for any disciple to ask. Look down at verse 36. He left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. Do you do that during Bible study? I, I talked about it just briefly this morning. This whole idea of being in conversation with the Lord right now while I'm talking to you. While our Bibles are open and while we're studying, something comes up and you're not quite sure about it. You're trying to find application. Something is shared and you're looking at a scripture and all of a sudden the Lord kind of takes you to the next column and you find yourself completely lost in there and then you feel bad because you're missing the teaching. Don't. Don't do that. When you come into Bible study, one of the best ways to worship through study is is to be in conversation with the Lord during study. I'm not the focal point here, gang. The Lord is. His Word is. And He may take you on such a tangent that you never get back to Revelation, and as I'm finishing up the study, you have learned something else that God had for you tonight that was better than anything that I could have prepared. And that's the way to do it. To be in conversation. To be saying like the disciples, Can you explain that to me, Lord? Yes, look over here. Oh, oh, that makes sense. Okay, is Rick still a Doesn't matter. You know, and off you go. Or, while we're right here together in these passages, you're still conversing with the Lord. Father, tell me what this means. Father, wow, praise you. What a great story, Lord. Thank you for that. Being in communication with the Father. You are not sitting in class right now. Please don't ever look at Bible study as class time. Head knowledge time. Because if you do that, you'll miss the heart. And you miss out in a further opportunity to deepen your relationship with the Father. So they ask this great question. Lord, what are you telling us? What does this mean for us personally? How can we prayerfully commune with you better? He he answers them. Verse 37, he says, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. Well, that's interesting. We had a son of man with a sickle sitting up on a cloud, didn't we? Revelation 14. The one who sows the good seed is the son of man, and the field is the word. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth His angels, they will gather out of His kingdom all stumbling blocks, and those who commit lawlessness, and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Is that clear for us? Is Jesus hedging? Is He beating around the bush? Is He being symbolic and difficult to understand there? I don't think so. It's very obvious what He's talking about. Verse 43, Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Explanation. The original sower is the son of man. The harvest is at the end of the tribulation. It's what happens at the end of the age. Harvest time. And notice in this parable that the tares are planted right in among the wheat. In the world today, the wheat and the tares coexist, don't we? We live side by side. We work side by side. We oftentimes don't even know sometimes if someone is wheat or tare until again they tear into us. But it's more than just that. It's in the church as well today. There is wheat and there are tares in the church. In church fellowships. You all have experienced that from time to time. I'm sure of it. And if you haven't, unfortunately, you probably will at some point. Wheat and tares together. And, by the way, the tares that are in the church today will, I believe, grow into the counterfeit apostate church that is alive and well during the tribulation, which we're going to get into in about the next, I think, chapter 16, 17 and there. The apostate church. There will be a world religion. During the tribulation, there will be a push for a conglomerate of all faiths just all coming together as one massive world church and gain the seeds of that church are the tares in the church today. Those who would usurp what the Lord is trying to do for their own purposes. And it shouldn't surprise us, at first Satan waged war with the church in AD 33 to about 312, he went after them, he was brutal, the persecution was intense, and it just grew the church. The more he persecuted, the more the church grew. Then, Satan wised up and he joined up with the church. He married the church, along about AD 312 after that, the time of Constantine and following that when the church in Rome kind of became uh, buddies together, nestled in close together, ultimately, Satan will oversee the church. Oh, not the church as you and I noted, not, not the bride of Christ, not the church of those who are faithful to Jesus, but the church around at the time of the tribulation will be under the oversight of Satan himself. So we might ask, just as, as was asked uh, in, in the parable, why not just tear out the tears today? Why not just rip them out? Why not look for them, find them, and kick them out? Because good wheat always gets hurt when the tares are pulled out. And Jesus understands this. Good people, people who are in Christ, can be bruised and battered when the tares are pulled out. So here's God's word on the matter. You love people and you keep sowing. Love people, keep sowing, he will deal with the tares, he will reap when the time is ripe. Now, when is that? When is that? Back in Revelation 14, notice that the Son of Man is not yet on the earth, he's in the clouds. He hasn't yet sat down, he has the sickle, he's ready to go, but the harvesting and the separating out of the tares happens, listen to this, it happens when salvation is no longer an option for people on earth. It happens when the decisions are set. When rebellion has reached its fullness, that's when God will begin the reaping process. That is the time when the die is cast and salvation is no longer available for rebellious humankind. Now for the bad news, verse 17. And another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven and he also had a sharp sickle. Then another angel, the one who has power over fire, came out from the altar, and he called out with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, because her grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the wine press was trodden outside the city, and blood came out from the wine press up to the horse's bridles for a distance of two hundred miles. No longer, we're no longer. Notice, we're no longer talking about grain. We're talking about grapes. And grapes in the scripture ultimately represent one thing over and over, time and time again. Grapes represent blood. And these grapes are pressed through. The wine press of the wrath of God, and the result is blood. This harvest, this harvest is not a soul harvest. This is a harvest of blood. This is a harvest of war. This is a harvest of tragedy. This is not the time of the Great Depression. My apologies to John Steinbeck. It's the time of the Great Tribulation, as as prophesied by the uh, prophet Joel. Speaking of Joel, flip over to the book of Joel. It's toward the end of the Old Testament. Right after Hosea Hosea, Joel, Amos Joel chapter 3 Now we've just finished chapter 14 But there are a few things we need to consider from these verses And we're going to jump around a bit to do this Joel chapter 3 verse 9 Proclaim this among the nations Prepare for a war Rouse the mighty men Let all the soldiers draw near Let them come up Beat your plowshares into swords, and your pruning hooks into spears, and let the weak say, I am a mighty man. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down, O Lord, your mighty ones. Let the nations be aroused, and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. It's also called the valley of Yahweh. In fact, that word Jehoshaphat is literally the Tetragrammaton. It's the Y-H-W-H. It's the name of God. It's Jehovah. It's Jehovah. Come up to the valley of Jehovah, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come tread, for the wine press is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes, we're talking about multiplied millions in the valley of decision. And that word decision is literally God's decision. The valley where God comes in and makes final and full judgment. This is Armageddon. This is what you've heard about. The word is thrown around. and is completely misunderstood so often, especially in Hollywood. But this is a true war, a real war that will be fought. And it will be fought on three fronts. Go over to the book of Daniel. Actually back, just about two, three books, two books back. The book of Daniel, chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11, verse 40. Let's start in verse 39. Speaking of Antichrist... It says he will take action against the strongest of fortresses with the help of a foreign god. He will give great honor to those who acknowledge him and will cause them to rule over the many and will parcel out land for a price. Verse 40, at the end time, the king of the south, this is Egypt, will collide with him. And the king of the north, likely Russia, will storm against him with chariots, with horsemen, and with many ships. And he will enter countries, overflow them, and pass through. This is a massive onslaught led by Antichrist. He will, verse 41, also enter the beautiful land, that's Israel. The beautiful land and many countries will fall but these will be rescued out of his hand. Edom, Moab and the foremost of the sons of Ammon. Then he will stretch out his hand against other countries and the land of Egypt will not escape. But he will gain control over the hidden treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt. And Libyans and Ethiopians will follow at his heels. But rumors from the east. And from the north will disturb him. And he will go forth with great wrath to destroy and annihilate many. Verse 45, he will pitch the tents of his royal pavilion between the seas. That is between the the Mediterranean and, and uh, and the Dead Sea. In between the two seas. And the beautiful holy mountain, this is Mount Zion. Yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. This is an amazing and interesting verse. He will come to his end and no one will help him. Antichrist goes on a full worldwide onslaught. The focus of world attention will not be just like today. The focus is on the Middle East. But the warring will be completely in the Middle East at that time. Antichrist will be pulling out all the stops himself to destroy. And it tells us he will come to his end and no one will help him. You know who will not help him? Satan won't. Satan's going to drive him to the very end. Satan will drive Antichrist to Antichrist's own destruction. Which tells you something about the heart of Satan. It's not about anybody but him. But this is a massive battle fought on three fronts. What you've just read is Antichrist begins by fighting off problems in the south. Meanwhile, rumors from the east a 200 million man army we're told in other places in scripture comes marching in from the east for the attack in addition northern forces are now coming down in other words the world is beginning to figure out that antichrist is not all he was cracked up to be and the world nations begin to apply pressure against antichrist to come against him where does that battle happen? in the valley called Megiddo Armageddon and what's interesting is in the middle of that that great well I'm getting ahead of myself let me show you that valley real quickly. Russ, get the lights so we can see this clearly. I'm going to show you three quick slides. The valley of Megiddo from Mount Carmel looking north. It's huge. It is vast. I took this picture standing up on the top of Mount Carmel back in January. That's looking to the north. This is now looking directly east. So take the picture we just saw and put it over there. And now turning and looking to the south. We can go back again. This is all the Valley of Megiddo. Armageddon. This is not a small area, gang. It's huge. It is absolutely vast. Got the picture? Mm-hmm. This is one of the things I want you all to see, which is why you should all be going to Israel with us next year. Mm-hmm. Alright, when Napoleon saw that valley, when when, when he stood with his armies and looked out over the vastness of that great plain between the great mountains of Israel, he looked across that and he spoke and said this phrase, he said, this must be the place where the final war will be waged. Napoleon, for all of his faults, was a grand master warrior. He he knew how to plan battles. That was his gift. And when he saw the valley of Megiddo, not only did he say this will be the place where the final war is waged, but he wept because he knew that he would never be able to fight a battle there. It was the perfect place for a massive worldwide onslaught. The valley of Megiddo. And we're told, gang, back in Revelation 14, verse 20, we're told that in this valley, the blood will flow. Think about how big it was. The blood will flow to the height of a horse's bridle. No war in history has ever seen that much blood. You might say, oh, well, that's just, that's just spiritual. Uh, that, that, that's not even possible. I mean, think about it. With all our nuclear power and modern weaponry, first of all, how can this battle even be fought on horseback? Why would there be horses riding around there? <laughs> I think there will be. I think by that time, the world will have messed itself up just enough that all we have is horseback and hand-to-hand combat. I think that's where it's going to end. I think the nuclear arsenals are going to be used up by that time, as we've seen in other parts of our studies. But I want you to think about this, especially when we talk about blood bridled deep. How can that be possible? In World War II, the bomb dropped on Hiroshima and 75,000 people died. Before that, at the Battle of Iwo Jima, 125,000 were killed in one battle. Yet in the Civil War, a war fought with bayonets and cannonballs and horses, more people died than at Hiroshima and Iwo Jima combined. In fact, more people died in the Civil War than in all the battles of the Pacific Theater during World War II. In fact, more people died in the Civil War than in all of World War II. More people died in the Civil War than in all of World War II and the Korean War combined. And that's not even the full truth. More people died in the crude hand-to-hand, horse-to-horse combat of the Civil War in America than in all of World War II, the Korean War, Vietnam, the Revolutionary War, and the Spanish-American War, and every other war in America's history combined. More people died in the Civil War. That's a lot of blood. And a lot of loss. The Civil War was the bloodiest and most costly of all America's wars, and it was not modern by any means. A war fought on horseback. And yet, I tell you all this to say that it will pale in comparison to Armageddon. Nothing that has ever been seen on the face of the earth will come close to the bloodshed that will happen at the end of the age And it's entirely likely that at the end of the tribulation, as I said before, at Armageddon, things will of necessity get back to -to hand-to-hand, horse-to-horse combat. And we're going to look more closely at this in a couple of weeks. But for now, I want you to do something with me. Flipping your Bibles to Isaiah 34. I want you to trace what happens when Jesus actually comes back and wages this war. Isaiah 34. The path that Jesus chooses to to tread as he returns to earth for this final conflict and God's ultimate judgment. And this literal bloodbath where the grapes of wrath are pressed out in the winepress of God. Isaiah 34 verse 1. Draw near, O nations, to hear, O listen, and listen, O peoples. Let the earth and all it contains here and the world and all that springs from it for the Lord's indignation is against all the nations. Where is America in the end times? It's one of all the nations. And the Lord's indignation is against all the nations. And his wrath against all their armies. He has utterly destroyed them. He has given them over to slaughter. So their slain will be thrown out and their corpses will give off their stench. And the mountains, not the valleys, the mountains will be drenched with their blood. And all the host of heaven will wear away, and the sky will be rolled up like a scroll. All their hosts will also wither away as a leaf withers from the vine, or as one withers from the fig tree. For my sword, God says, is satiated in heaven. Behold, it shall descend for judgment upon Edom, and upon the people whom I have devoted to destruction. The sword of the the Lord is filled with blood. It is sated with fat. With the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams, for the Lord has a sacrifice. Watch this in Basra. We're not talking about Iraq. The Lord has a sacrifice in Basra and a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Flip over to Isaiah 63. Isaiah 63 in verse one continue on this train of thought about the Lord uh, returning or taking uh, vengeance beginning with Basra. Listen. Who is this who comes from Edom with garments of glowing colors from Basra? This one who is majestic in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. But why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? Verse 3, Jesus speaking, I have trodden the wine trough alone. And from the peoples there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. And their life blood is sprinkled on my garments and I stained all my raiment. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption has come. Vengeance and redemption? Yes, both. He wants to redeem, but he will pour out vengeance on this Christ-rejecting world. Verse 5, I looked and there was no one to help, and I was astonished, and there was no one to uphold. Verse 5, continuing, so my own arm brought salvation to me, and my wrath upheld me. I trod down the peoples in my anger, and made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Whose garments are stained red? The garments of Christ. Jesus Christ. Revelation 19.13 tells us that he will be clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the word of God. It's Jesus. He is the one. And according to Isaiah, he is the one who begins in Basra. And begins this march, this solitary march as it were, north up toward Jerusalem. Basra is south. Basra is at the tail end of the valley of Megiddo. The valley of Megiddo is up in northern Israel, a wide valley, a great expanse, as you've seen. But it narrows as it comes down toward Jerusalem and becomes what's called the Kadron Valley, which is a very small and narrow valley through the city of Jerusalem. And it continues on down all the way to what was Edom, to the place called Basra. That will make up the entire valley where the blood of the horses is bridle deep. So it's even more than what you just saw pictured on the slides. It's a vast distance of 200 miles, and the blood will flow at Armageddon all the way from Basra to Megiddo. 200 miles bridle deep of the horses. It's kind of hard to even imagine that much blood, that much slaughter. But the Bible tells us that this is exactly what will happen. The picture that we see in Isaiah is one of a person stomping on grapes. And the blood will be splattered, splashing up all over the garments and the raiment of Jesus Christ. And when Jesus comes back in his glory, it looks as though he does so in three steps. First to Basra. First to Basra. Secondly to Megiddo. The 200 miles north, past Jerusalem. It's also, by the way, Megiddo is called the Jezreel Valley, the Valley of Jehoshaphat. And as I said, it runs into the Kidron Valley, splitting Jerusalem on the east. And listen to this, it's interesting, all of the land of Israel will be soaked in blood. All of Israel will be soaked in blood at the convergence of history's greatest war. As all these forces that we just talked about, remember I said a few minutes ago, this Armageddon battle is a war fought on three fronts. As Antichrist goes one direction to fight and he hears of rumors from the north and from the east, he comes back and everybody's converging in one place to actually do battle with Antichrist. But what happens? Jesus shows up on the scene. And the rebellious heart of man will in that moment turn all of its vengeance and fury at Jesus away from Antichrist. And Jesus in one fell swoop will put it down and the blood will flow. And the vengeance of God will be fully realized and understood and recognized in this world step one Basra step two Megiddo step three where his feet actually touch down and that is on the Mount of Olives where he sets foot on this mount in Jerusalem Zechariah 14 verse 4 and when he does so he splits it right down the middle is this too bloody for any of you is it hard to imagine the gracious loving precious Lamb of God as a bloodthirsty warrior is it hard to imagine him tearing people apart with his sickle as he comes down for not the harvest of souls, but the harvest of blood? This is not a picture of Jesus that I'm real comfortable with, to be honest. I like the graceful Jesus when he came the first time. I like the Jesus who taught and healed, loved I like the Jesus who, when he talked to the Pharisees, took them on and outwitted him. I loved his smartness. I love his humor. I love the weight of his sorrow and his love for mankind. That's the Jesus I love. This Jesus? This Jesus is a little dangerous. This Jesus is a little frightening. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, listen closely, because I want you to understand why this is so bloody and why it must be so. Hebrews 9.22 tells us that almost all things are, by the law, purged with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no remission. There are two types of blood that can be shed, gang. Our blood are His? But blood must be shed to pay for sin. Why? Why is it so bloody? Why so much blood? Why does it all come to this? Because there is nothing more serious in this world than sin. There is nothing more serious than sin. Understand, sin is a hideous thing. It separated the Father from the Son. Our sin on Jesus at the cross was so awful that all Jesus could do was cry out, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? And I fully believe, and you've probably heard it taught before, that in that moment on the cross, the Lord actually had to turn His back on Jesus because He could not abide the sin that was on Jesus at the time. And that, my friends, is the picture of our sin. The brutality, if you watch The Passion of the Christ, just to get a concept of that, the brutality of the cross is the ugliness of sin. It had to be that way. The cross doesn't just show us how much Jesus loves us. The cross shows us how ugly and brutal our sin is. How deserving of bloodshed sin really is in mankind. It soaks all the world. It soaks the entire history of mankind. And you and I as sinners are those who truly have earned bloody wrath. This is what we deserve. Armageddon is what we deserve. But by the grace of Jesus, it's not what we get. By the full mercy of God, and not by anything you and I have done, it's not what we receive. We get grace. Why? Why is my blood not poured out? Revelation 14.20 ends with this verse. The winepress was trodden outside the city and blood came out from the winepress. Aside from the obvious location of the battle of Megiddo, I think John is indicating something for us. It's interesting to me that this shows up at this time. The two greatest events of all human history happen outside the city of Jerusalem. One we we just talked about tonight, Armageddon. The valley of Megiddo and that bloody campaign will be the greatest battle, the greatest war history has ever seen. But the other greatest event was the crucifixion of Jesus, which also happened right outside the city, where Jesus was hung on the cross as a sin-soaked Savior. And we are reminded of the verse, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And so we have two opportunities. We have two choices that are afforded by God. Two options. We can either be purged in the bloodbath of Armageddon. Or we can be purified by being bathed in the blood of Jesus Christ at Calvary. His blood or yours. That's what God offers. For sin requires blood. The wonder is that Jesus gave his. I'll end with this verse. Hebrews 13.11. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest, as an offering for sin, are burned outside the camp. Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So then let us go to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. This is no fairy tale. This is no Lord of the Rings saga. This is the truth of Armageddon. It will happen. The battle at the valley, Armageddon. It is coming, and it is humanity's final ground zero. And so I go back to where we began. That we might know, friends and family, would come to the Lord We have a job in this world. Pray and plant. Plant and pray. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send out harvesters of souls before the harvest of blood comes about. Because the Bible's clear, it will. The wrath of God will pour out. And as we get into chapters 15 and 16 and 17, you're going to see that wrath. You're going to see bowls of wrath that are poured out and unleashed unlike anything we've studied in our tribulation studies Chapter 6 through 19 so far. Let's pray. Father, I just want to thank you for the blood of Jesus. Thank you for the blood of, of one man that was poured out on my behalf. That was so effective and so sufficient as to cover all of the sins of all mankind for all eternity of those who would choose to believe in Jesus and have faith in Him and you know Father it's funny to me that in light of this study tonight and the absolute vastness of the significance of the battle to come of the tribulation of the end times of all that you're doing Lord my personal problems seem awfully petty My day-to-day concerns seem awfully minimal, awfully small. In light of what you're doing here across history, as time winds down, I come back to this place again and again to understand, Lord, that the only thing that matters is that we love Jesus with all of our hearts, our minds, our souls, and our strength. And we love people the way you loved us. Father, we pray tonight for seeds that we have been able to plant. We pray for seeds that will be planted. And we pray for people to hear your great love and to come to faith in Jesus. And it's because of our faith in Jesus that we pray this in his name, the precious name of Jesus Christ, your Son and our Savior. Amen.